Welcome to Michael and us. I'm Will Sloan here as usual with Luke Savage. It's good to be back. So you were in Canada's beautiful Algonquin Park for how many days? Uh, I was five days, f- four nights, but five days, like including the day I went into the park and the and the day I came out, which were both also very full days. And uh, we went a went a really long way coming in and out. So yeah, pretty pretty amazing. I've definitely never done anything like that before. It's both exhausting and exhilarating. You don't really get tired, even though you're kind of like sleeping. I mean, it's camping, so you're just like sleeping. There's like a, you know, a camp map between you and the ground inside your tent. And I mean, there is truly an emptiness and a silence in there that I don't think I've ever experienced before. Like once you get out of kind of the main, you know, there are different ways. Algonquin Park is huge. And, you know, it was amazing, like looking at the map after I came out, kind of knowing a little bit more about the northwest corner of it, which is where I was. It feels so big when you're in there, like the just the part you're in. And you look and, you know, your pinky finger just like covers like a tiny little sliver of the park. Like you'd have to go in, you know, 50 or 60 times to actually see the whole park. But once you get outside of kind of like the initial lake where, you know, there tend to be more people camping because it's close by, like you just barely see anybody. The very last night, uh, my friend and I, I guess on our on our fourth day, we did this really difficult portage over two kilometers into something called Lorne Lake, which was a smaller lake than any of the other ones we'd been to. There were five campsites in there, not a single one occupied, and we did not see a, a single soul in there the whole time. Like we were in there for more than 24 hours because the portages coming in and out were too difficult and people weren't attempting them. So all the cliches they say about this kind of trip, you disconnect, you switch off, all true, it turns out. And all of those things, uh, it also turns out, are, are pretty amazing. So I, I really, really enjoyed it. Definitely going to do it again. And did you hunt for food <laughs> uh, or did you did you bring your own? Did you did you bring toilet paper or did you decide to, you know, just just rough it? Just go au naturel? People, people do fish, apparently. Like, apparently people do fishing expeditions. I, I guess that's like later. I think people are still going. I think the park's open all winter. And people go like right into the center of it, into the bigger lake that are in the center of it and fish. But uh, we brought a mix of fresh food and also these freeze-dried meals, which I got to say are, are amazing because they, they taste great. Like they taste better than really anything you can make when you're camping. And the other thing about them that's really the key is that they're so light. Like, you know, you can get like, you pack like more than a thousand calories in just this thing that weighs like a few grams. And that really starts to matter when you have to carry a canoe and two backpacks and a food barrel over like two kilometers or more of, of difficult ground. So those definitely made it much more bearable uh, as well. You know, there were some like pretty serious thunderstorms. The very first day, uh, right as we were heading out onto the big lake, people around us, you know, there were more people on that initial lake. You know, there was just like this general kind of air of, you know, unease and angst from the people around us. It was a pretty inauspicious way to begin the, the trip. And then, you know, minutes after setting out, you know, we load everything up to the canoe. We're like, all right, it's a few hours to our campsite. Let's go. Here we are, Algonquin Park. Let's do it. And within minutes, you know, there's like these ominous rumblings of thunder. And, you know, this far north, the storms are really not fucking around. Like the the thunderstorms in Toronto are nothing compared to this. And then, you know, people start shouting at us from like we're passing campsites on the shore and people are like, you guys have to, you know, pull in. You can't be on the lake in a thunderstorm. And so we did just make it to the campsite before the really serious like lightning and thunder started. But it was bucketing with rain. So got completely soaked as we were setting up the campsite. So that first night was about as uncomfortable and damp as camping can get and my friend actually you know we we brought we had 
really most of what we needed in terms of equipment. We didn't want to pack too heavy for obvious reasons. My friend forgot this little tiny attachment that you need to get his camp stove going. So the only way we could cook anything was on the fire, which is obviously pretty difficult, pretty difficult to start a campfire when it's bucketing with rain and has been before he got there. So we ended up like cooking steaks, being thoroughly soaked through cooking steaks on this campfire we somehow got going. It was great. I can't wait to do it again. Got soaked uh, the next day as well. Sounds sounds, <laughs> sounds awful, but I'm glad you it was, enjoyed it. It was it was great. It was so uncomfortable and uh, and it absolutely <laughs> ruled. I can't wait to do it again. So, uh, what were you not here for? Did you not see the uh, UN climate report? Uh, did you see the withdrawal from Afghanistan? What major discourse cycles did you miss? Well, you you brought this up to me a few days ago, and you were like, "Oh, you missed all this stuff," and I was like, "Wait, what did I miss?" And you're like, "Oh no, it was just the like just the usual bullshit." So. Actually, Actually, yeah, now, now that I mention it, yeah, you actually, I guess, potentially you did miss some major consequential stuff. Uh, <laughs> well, the one thing I remember was coming out when I was back in North Bay after coming out, two things happened. Like I was keen to like ease myself back in. I was like, I'm just going to check one, if an election's been called and two, if Andrew Cuomo is, is still governor of New York. So uh, one, it was like, oh, yeah, that happened. Right, too. It was like one, the election was was going to be called like shortly. That was confirmed Two. Cuomo, no longer governor. Bye-bye. And then the other thing that happened, which is amazing, is I realized when I when I was in the park, I completely forgot about COVID. And I know this sounds like kind of another cliche, like, oh, I disconnected. I forgot about COVID. But seriously, there no one in the park, like, obviously, the people you do see, they're not wearing masks. No one at the Outfitters was wearing a mask that I set out from and returned to. I just, like, completely forgot about that ritual um, and so going to like the beer store to get beer, like after coming out of the park, I was like, oh, right, I still have to do that. And I'm bringing this up mainly because I think it sort of bodes well for the everyone's post-COVID routine. You know, when, when we finally are post-COVID, I think a lot of us have been wondering, and I've been certainly wondering, when this is actually over, like not when we have like lots of vaccinations, but we're possibly in the middle of like a variant driven fourth wave or whatever, but like when it's actually over in some fashion, are we actually going to be able to shed these these routines or is it, you know, are, are we we just going to sort of like all be wedded to them in one way or another forever. And this kind of suggests to me that there might actually be like a, like I can, I can now imagine a post mask world. There was a minor discourse cycle, a very minor discourse cycle in the film Twitter world about whether or not movie studios should be providing critics with digital screeners and not just because it's so dangerous to go out to a movie theater in COVID, but also because of lots of other implications like, oh, is it ableist? to not provide digital screeners is it this is it that and and i have to admit i'm not terribly sympathetic with the argument it's funny when you brought this up i thought it was i thought what you were telling me was that there was a controversy around you know the the practice of studios uh giving advanced screeners to critics you know the problem with that being that it it potentially creates this kind of clientelist relationship like that i know that's what happens with video games right like you want to create buzz around a game uh just tell like you know the 30 leading gaming youtubers or whatever like hey guess what we think you're special we love you and here's a free copy please don't say anything bad about our game if you want the next one but no it's, it's that it's ableist and reckless and dangerous for movie studios to expect critics to go to a physical movie theater to see the thing and also elitist because it's largely open only to people who live in major cities Um, and I'm not all that sympathetic to it because I think well why do you need to see it early to write about it 
like presumably if what you're writing is of any interest at all it will still be interesting if you if you post it one day after it comes out god i I sure hope this wasn't one of the major discourse cycles quote unquote that you said i missed because this seems like uh kind of small fry in fact it was so not major it didn't it didn't launch any discourse cycle at all and what was really funny is there was a big article in variety a big op-ed about it that was clearly like primed for some sort of discourse cycle and it didn't launch anything um because nobody cares and and why would they don't do you why love it would they? don't you love it when that happens when like you can see that there's like a piece of content it's like all the forces are in play you know the pieces are on the board it's like all right we're doing this we're primed you got gonna... ableism you got elitism you got uh coastal coastal elitism yeah it's like like all right folks the futures on this one are looking great the the stock is rising we're good by... could, could be could be viral by close of day time to get in on the ground floor and then just like absolutely nothing happens <laughs> Well, a bit of foreshadowing of the movie. Uh, Before we get to the movie, uh, I'd like to share some things I've been thinking about in regards to the wide world of sex. Uh, (laughs) Can I say, in addition to forgetting about Mass, I also forgot about Will Sloan's coveted awkward segues, and that one surely ranks among the best. Sadly, I'm not talking about actual sex. I'm I'm talking about sex-adjacent online things. So first, I would like to mention, as a way of leading into the second thing, uh, that uh, Letterboxd, a popular online uh, movie social media platform, sort of the Goodreads for movies, where you can log movies that you watch and write reviews. Uh, This week, they, for the first time, allowed a curated list of 1,500 porn movies on their platform. There are 1,500 uh, aesthetically or historically significant porn movies that you can log, you can review, you can rate them. As somebody who loves cinema in all its forms, I certainly welcomed this development. It was absurd, for example, that Bad Lieutenant director Abel Ferrara's first movie, which was a porn film, was not available for serious cineas to log and to, and to critique on this platform or Wes Craven's second film, The Fireworks Woman. Uh, That has been rectified now. It was funny to me, though, that it's a curated list of 1,500 movies. So, for example, if you want to log Marilyn Chambers' 1980 classic Insatiable, you can, but you cannot log her immediate follow-up, Up and Coming, which is very funny to me, because both of them seem to me to be exactly as much of a movie as the other one, if you want to apply that term. Uh, but but one is, I guess, through some uh, mystical criteria, deemed more of a movie than the other one. Uh, and I sort of think that, like, if, if you're doing this, you may as well just let every single one on, you know? What's the accountability? What are the standards that really qualify one thing as a movie and one other thing as not a movie? I, th- I think it all has to be on there. That's just my two cents, you know? I think all all 100 of Sean Costello's movies should be on there and not just the top 20. <laughs> it's a little deep cut reference for the real cinephiles <laughs> out there. But the second point is that uh, despite this flawed but encouraging development, only fans today announced that it is, you know, we brought this up on the show once before, uh, it, it's, it's fully transitioning out of pornography. Did you hear this? 
Did you see this? Did you hear that about this? Uh, yeah, I, I, I saw this earlier today. I don't I don't really have an opinion except the same kind of obvious stuff that everybody's been saying, which, it, you know, it certainly looks like this company built its entire reputation on the back of, of sex workers. When you hear OnlyFans, you know, you think of a very specific thing. That's what the entire business model is based around. And it sounds like they're transitioning away from that because they think they can make more money if they're kind of more respectable and that banks and, and investors will reward them. So, I mean, I think that's bullshit. Is there nothing that venture capital won't destroy sooner or later? Well, Patreon, Uh, hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) Wouldn't it be nice to finally be free of this? (laughs) No, uh, please Uh, subscribe. Patreon.com slash Michael and us. I think I bring this up more than anything just to just to speculate on what a porn-free OnlyFans would look like in the future. I mean, doesn't it seem like just creating an entirely new service from scratch at this point? Their their model seems to be that they want to start attracting like the greatest entertainers, athletes, uh, music and film personalities to share their exclusive content. And I don't know, it's so much is for free on the internet. The one thing that people are really willing to pay for, aside from their favorite podcasts, are uh, uh, pictures of people they want to see naked, uh, naked. And I don't know, this whole model of creating like this sort of like subscriber exclusive thing for famous personalities. It's just like a Twitter that you pay for. What was that controversy with it was with OnlyFans, right? Where there was some celebrity who posted Mm -hmm. like a single photo and it was just like kind of like basically an Instagram photo. I don't remember who that was, but, you know, it pissed a lot of people off. And basically, it sounds like the company's takeaway was, what if we did that, but for the entire business model? (laughs) (laughs) That was a real Al Capone's vault level of disaster. So I look forward to OnlyFans imminent collapse. I'm, I'm actively rooting against it, I would even say. But folks, it's all capitalism, isn't it? And as my my own personal role model, my own capitalist spirit animal tells me greed is good. And that's the lesson that I took away from Oliver Stone's 1987 classic Wall Street, <laughs> the film that we watched this week. From the director of Platoon, the next battle is in the greatest jungle of them all, Wall Street. We're going down the drain, okay? The stock is plummeting. When it hits 18, buy it all. Something big is going down. I want you to fill out the missing picture. Mr. Gecko, that's not exactly what I do. Where you can trade your honor. I can lose my license. That's inside information. For power. If you're not inside, you are outside. I want you with me, buddy. I'm with you, Gordon. Trade your peace of mind. Just the beginning, pal. If any trouble does arise, you are on your own. The trail does stop with you. For a piece of the action. A hundred million dollars, buddy. All it takes is a little inside information. I don't care where or how you get it. I think you owe me. And you can trade everything you believe in. He's using you, kid. But you're too blind to see it. For everything you've ever wanted. I get a strange call from the SEC. This is heavy, bud. Why do you need to wreck this company? Because it's wreckable, all right? Michael Douglas, Charlie Sheen, Daryl Hannah, Martin Sheen, and Oliver Stone film Wall Street.
Had you ever seen Wall Street before? Yes, I'd seen it once before and had uh, a mostly mostly positive memories of it, although I didn't remember it too well. The reason I wanted to do it was because I recently revisited The Wolf of Wall Street, Martin Scorsese's 2013 film, and also saw for the first time The Big Short. Uh, and I was keen to see how this film, which is set, I guess, around the same time as The Wolf of Wall Street begins, I was keen to see how its portrayal of Wall Street compared. And, you know, we probably won't do them in succession, but I do think it might be fun to actually do all three films for the podcast as kind of a comparative study in how Wall Street has been presented on film. Because I think all of these are, in different ways, good films. I certainly think The Wolf of Wall Street is the most guns-blazing kind of fun you can have with any of these movies. But all, all of these are strong films. They all have a kind of critique of Wall Street. I think from a political perspective, they all have some limitations and blind spots. And even though I like Oliver Stone's Wall Street, I think this is especially true of it. This film really fascinates me because it's an example of a movie that, to some extent, rightly, has a reputation as kind of, you know, the film which captures the, you know, pernicious zeitgeist of the Reagan era. The idea that greed is good, it shows how this is ultimately a kind of lawless and self-defeating and, and morally vacant philosophy. You know, it shows rapacious capitalists like Gordon Gecko putting the screws into the American working class, etc., and yet, watching it again, you know, I was really struck by the hard stops it puts on that critique, which I think represent uh, something that uh, you find channeled throughout a lot of Oliver Stone's filmography. Um, and I'm keen to hear your thoughts on that, because I think you know his work a bit better than I do. I don't think we've ever done an Oliver Stone film on this podcast. You are forgetting Dubya. You remember Dubya? <laughs> the, <laughs> the, the classic? <laughs> yeah, I remember Dubya. <laughs> Oliver Stone's career is really funny to me. First of all, he's not a guy that I hold in especially high regard, although he was at one time a very muscular technical filmmaker. His career is funny because the first half of it, or maybe at this point, the first third of it, seemed very plugged into the zeitgeist. You know, Platoon and Born on the Fourth of July came out at this moment in the 80s when there was this real appetite to re-examine the Vietnam War. JFK, it was the same with the Kennedy assassination. Natural Born Killers was this extraordinary lightning rod for a lot of culture war issues that were swirling at the time. And Wall Street, it was released on December 11th, 1987, which was less than two months after Black Monday, which was the stock market crash that was probably at the time the worst one since the Great Depression. Had a lot of people predicting and fearing that uh, the global economy was going to be plunged into another Great Depression. In Jay Hoberman's book, Make My Day, Movie Culture in the Age of Reagan, he writes a little bit about Wall Street. He writes, Wall Street was a buzz generator from the moment it was announced by 20th Century Fox. Coming off Platoon's multiple Oscars, Stone's latest was hyped as a new kind of war film. Stone was himself a stockbroker's son. No less than Platoon, the story was personal and nothing if not ambitious. Both detractors and proponents called Wall Street a documentary. Indeed, an exclusive preview for a generally appreciative cabal of bankers, financiers, and sundry economic power brokers was described by the New York Times as an evening of home movies. Evidently, the invited audience believed it too. Some at the preview thought the masses wouldn't get Wall Street. It was too arcane and too New York. But yeah, getting back to Oliver Stone, I mean, he's he's a weird figure. He's of a different generation than you or I. He's like like an older baby boomer liberal 
sort of left liberal, I guess it's fair to say. He's often described as like a lefty. And his politics, I mean, there are times when he really comes across as a Howard Zinn wannabe. He had that documentary series, The Untold History of the United States, which is basically sort of warmed over Howard Zinn. He's done all these documentaries where he talks to vilified uh, world leaders like Putin and Chavez and Castro, you know, very laudatory, one might even say hagiographic portraits of these figures. They're certainly intended to be correctives to the dominant, you know, American media perception of them. But I don't know, there's something in his movies. I mean, his movies, I think, vary wildly in quality. He'll he'll make a movie like World Trade Center. I don't know if you've ever seen that. I, that. I haven't seen it, although I did notice it just went up on Netflix. I mean, in a way, that is such a natural candidate for our podcast. And yet I just I just don't know if I can bear to sit through that. It, it's quite a bad film. And it's certainly, I think, his most earnest film. You know, it's very much a straight up movie about, you know, America is stronger than her worst defeats. Right. And- I mean, I I feel like I just don't need to actually see it. I think I know what it is. (laughs) He'll make a movie like Nixon, which, you know, I kind of like Nixon. It's pretty fun, but it's got those scenes where like Nixon is wandering through the White House and he sees the portrait of Kennedy and he's like, they love you because you're who they want to be. They hate me because I'm who they are. You know, he has a certain (laughs) weakness for like, like at the same time that he's this maverick truth teller, this guy who is going to blow your mind and reveal the hidden truths that the American imperial state doesn't want you to know. <laughs> he he also is as susceptible to just like the corniest received wisdom as anyone. Right, right. So like my, per- <laughs> this is exactly what I mean about, about Wall Street. I feel like Oliver Stone's politics are basically like those of like a New Deal liberal with a bit of a dissident streak, but who nevertheless gets most of his information from Time Life, you know, special editions or whatever. The hundredth one they've produced with Kennedy on the cover. <laughs> or whatever. Well, it's because he he <laughs> likes those. He wants America to be that. Yeah, I mean, he yeah. is very earnestly a guy who fought in the Vietnam War and went over wanting to spread American democracy. You know, that was him. And then over the course of the Vietnam War, he became disillusioned. Those two personae live within him, don't they? Well, I was struck by something that uh, Felix Biederman said on a recent episode of Chapo. I can't remember. Uh, I can't remember what they were discussing. But he said something about, you know, how Oliver Stone will have these critiques of the American deep state and all this kind of stuff, but he's incapable of making the next step to like, maybe what's what's underneath all this shouldn't be treated as sort of axiomatically good. Like maybe these things are not deviations from something, you know, they're not corruptions of something pure. But he's like unable to do that. And so instead, like even as he's making, you know, his critiques of it, you know, in this case, finance, capitalism or war, whatever, he ultimately has to kind of fall back on this like very stock patriotic portrait of America. And I feel like Wall Street, for that reason, is a kind of quintessential American liberal film in that it, it possesses a real and, you know, persuasive and well-articulated critique of its subject. But if you actually read between the lines, you know, it's not it's not exactly a radical film. And perhaps we can get into that a bit. Well, the lead character is Bud Fox, played by the great Charlie Sheen, <laughs> your favorite actor. Uh, he's a young stockbroker at a mid-level Wall Street firm. And the other major character is Gordon Gecko, played by Michael Douglas. And folks, you know Gordon Gecko. He's the very personification of American capitalism. High-powered corporate raider, 
but he's also a new kind of corporate raider, isn't he? He's he's a new kind of capitalist for the Donald Trump era, and by which I mean the first Donald Trump era. This is one of the things I like about the film, actually. It, it really makes quite an effort to tell you about Gecko and his class background. So, you know, you find out that Gecko had a kind of working or lower middle class father who did manual work of some kind. He describes himself as a city college boy. And so he's a rapacious striver, and he doesn't come from old money. And this is something that's very important to understand, I think, about the 1980s in both Britain and America, which were, you know, two of the countries that really embraced this kind of greed is good ethos and and had it articulated as a political philosophy in the public sphere. A lot of the people who kind of broke down the doors on that and who are kind of most synonymous with it, um, you know, Margaret Thatcher is an example of this. They often came from middle class backgrounds. They were real class fighters. Uh, Margaret Thatcher, I think, was the daughter of a grocer. And she was kind of a rebel against like the old money uh, establishment of the Tory party. Gordon Gecko is kind of uh, very similar in many ways, you know, and because he's come from not exactly poverty, but certainly a modest background, there's a sort of fervor of apostasy in what he does. You know, he's proudly a kind of class traitor in some way, and he views anybody who isn't like him, you know, he sees that as a character flaw. Well, Gordon sees a bit of himself in young Bud, because Bud also comes from a working class background. Bud's father, played by Martin Sheen, is the head of the union at Blue Star Airlines. Now, Bud is doing everything he can to try to curry favor with Gordon Gecko. Not just curry favor, but but merely get a meeting with the great man. He finally blusters his way into a meeting with a nice box of Cubans. And after pitching him a number of not very impressive stocks, finally catches Gecko's attention with a little bit of insider trading. He's got a little bit of knowledge from his father about the goings-on at Blue Star encourages Gecko to invest in the stock, uh, and Gecko does and makes a bit of money off it. And so a mentorship is born. Gecko introduces Bud to a whole new world of 1980s bonfire of the vanities Manhattan decadence, but it comes with a cost. Bud must do Gecko's bidding, no matter how illegal. So he must spy literally spy on another high-powered investor, played by Terrence Stamp. Very stacked cast this movie has, by the way. And through this, Gecko learns that Terrence Stamp plans to buy a company, so Gecko is able to then drive a very hard bargain to get Stamp to buy his share. And Terrence Stamp, importantly, as a counterpoint to Gecko, clearly comes from old money. He's, you know, an older kind of capitalist. And he's a capitalist, as we see in one scene, who uh, Oliver Stone wants us to know he's got a bit of a social conscience. There's a social contract that he wants to foster when he buys into a company. Like The Wolf of Wall Street, this movie invites us to luxuriate somewhat in the benefits of this lifestyle. You're you're with Charlie Sheen as he's picking up his trophy girlfriend and, you know, looking at the finest art and culture and wine that New York has to offer in the 80s. But in the second half, things as they must go sour. Tension arises when Bud encourages Gecko to buy Blue Star Airlines, and the union agrees to the deal despite the misgivings of Martin Sheen. However, after buying the company, Gecko reveals his nefarious plan to dissolve its assets, eliminate the workforce, and take their pension money. So Bud finally realizes what he has done and decides to sabotage this plan by working with the union to manipulate the stock, hoping that 
Gecko will sell his interest. The plan works. The somewhat more kindly capitalist, played by Terrence Stamp, is able to buy back the company. But the FBI, who have long been on Bud's tail, finally close in on him, arrest him in front of the whole office. Well, I do think first we should talk about the Martin Sheen character a little bit, because he's the counterpoint to, he's the real counterpoint to Gecko. You know, an alternate title to this film might be, Who's Your Daddy? There are these two candidates, Gordon Gecko and, and Carl Fox, who's Bud's real father, are sort of competing to win father-son affection with Bud. Bud is tempted, you know, he's he's situated between these two worlds. And, you know, even though the, the father-son plot here is, uh, I mean, it's it's pretty generic stuff. It's like, you know, there's a scene where he's like yelling at his father. It's like, you're always there for your union guys. Why couldn't you be there for me? It's, uh, you know, it's a little, little bit hackneyed, but it, it does serve an important function in the plot which is that Bud is caught between these two worlds. There's this world of kind of bourgeois striving that Gordon Gecko presents him with and this kind of nouveau riche lifestyle that comes with it. And then there's the kind of blue collar conscience that he gets from his real dad. And I got to say, I love the Martin Sheen character. I love his screeds against capitalism and greed and stuff. There's a scene where Gordon Gecko is trying to buy him off, get him to do this crooked deal and then, you know, offer him you know, basically a bribe in exchange for it. And, uh, and he says, there came into Egypt a pharaoh who did not know. And Gecko says, I beg your pardon, is that a proverb? And Carl Fox says, no, a prophecy. The rich have been doing it to the poor since the beginning of time. The only difference between the pyramids and the Empire State Building is that the Egyptians didn't allow unions. I know what this guy is all about. Greed. He doesn't give a damn about Blue Star or the unions. He's in and out for the buck and he doesn't take prisoners. So, I mean, that is like obviously as heavy handed as kind of this sort of screenwriting can get. But I think it's great. Uh, he has another line at the end of the movie when his son is about to go to prison or is about to go to court anyway in this insider trading case. He says, you know, son, you should try creating instead of living off the buying and selling of others. And I don't know, I feel like it's rare that you get, I want to give Oliver Stone credit here because I think it's rare that you get such a kind of overtly pro-labor perspective uh, in a Hollywood movie. I'm glad you said that actually, because as I was watching this, I was perhaps not giving it enough credit for that. It was strange to me to read some of the contemporary press coverage and contemporary reviews that all treated this movie as so uh, cutting edge, like they'd never seen a movie that was sort of this confrontational about capitalism. When I think about it, I mean, frankly, there there actually aren't a lot of movies that have their characters say things like this. But at the same time, it follows such a sort of conventional Hollywood story, you know, Hollywood rise and fall story. Wolf of Wall Street, which you brought up earlier, it comes years later, and it's certainly at least partly influenced by this movie. Um, although this movie is clearly influenced by Scorsese, too. So there's a bit of mutual appreciation going on between the two filmmakers. But that's a movie that's so much more uncompromising. It doesn't have the characters delivering this explicit anti-capitalist or quasi-anti-capitalist messaging, but it also doesn't feel the need to give the audience the standard rise and fall story. It doesn't feel the need to really linger on Jordan Belfort's punishment the way that this movie does with Gecko and Bud. That's true, and uh, we should do a whole episode on The Wolf of Wall Street, but I think the key difference between The Wolf of Wall Street and Stone's Wall Street is that The Wolf of Wall Street is, I think, almost entirely concerned with the kind of libidinal 
primal appeal of, you know, rapacious 1980s capitalism. You know, it's all about sex and drugs for Jordan Belfort. It's true that it's a film like this about the greed inherent in finance capitalism and all the rest of it. But I mean, so much of the film is just about like doing lots and lots of cocaine and, you know, having the Jordan Belfort approach to life, reveling in being able to do literally anything you want and, you know, living in this totally sexist and masculinist kind of world that's all driven by male desire and that kind of thing. This movie has a bit of that. You know, there's that scene where as Bud, you know, as his star is rising, they're riding, you know, they're in go-karts on a, on a beach or something, you know, and there's the scene where he first sets up his big penthouse apartment or whatever. But I think the film is a little less interested in the, the libidinal side of this uh, as The Wolf of Wall Street. And The Wolf of Wall Street does all that incredibly well. You're right. This movie depicts the actual wheeling and dealing itself as being the drug and like the Daryl Hannah character and the Sean Young character. Like it's comical the extent to which they are just window dressing. They may as well be like furniture in the apartment. Right. And so, you know, in The Wolf of Wall Street, which I'm not knocking because it's a it's a great film. I watched it. I don't know for maybe the the fifth or sixth time since it came out the other day. And uh, I feel like I have more fun with it every single time. But you would not hear any of the monologues that, you know, Martin Sheen has in this movie or even, you know, even the kind of offhand comments he makes. You would not have, for example, the monologue where Gordon Gecko says, the richest 1% of this country own half our country's wealth, $5 trillion. One third of that comes from hard work. Two thirds comes from inheritance, interest on interest, accumulating to widows and idiot sons and what I do, stock and real estate speculation. It's bullshit. You got 90% of the American public out there with little or no net worth. I create nothing. I own. We make the rules, pal. The news, war, peace, famine, upheaval, the price per paperclip. We pick that rabbit out of the hat while everyone sits out there wondering how the hell we did it. Now, you're naive enough to think we're living in a democracy, are you, buddy? It's the free market, and you're part of it. You've got that killer instinct. Stick around, pal. I've got a lot to teach you. I mean, when I hear you recite it, I mean, like, I'm groaning at it. It's a testament to how good an actor Michael Douglas is that you don't groan when you're listening to it. I mean, it's so... Like Oliver Stone has such a Stanley Kramer streak to him, all this speechifying. I agree. It's there's no subtlety to it at all. And yet, how often in a Hollywood film do you get to see a capitalist say, I'm a speculator, what I do is bullshit, I create nothing, I just own pieces of paper, and you can too. We don't live in a democracy, we live in a market society. Embrace it. Stone presents Gecko, I think I mean, I think he's almost completely unsympathetic. There's perhaps one scene where Stone allows the character to give some kind of self-justification beyond, you know, I'm a useless parasite and it's great and and you should be too. And it's the scene where, you know, this famous scene where Gecko addresses uh, the shareholders meeting. The new law of evolution in corporate America seems to be survival of the unfittest. Well, in my book, you either do it right or you get eliminated. In the last seven deals that I've been involved with, there were 2.5 million stockholders who have made a pre-tax profit of $12 billion. Thank you. I am not a destroyer of companies. I am a liberator of them. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all of its forms. Greed for life, for money, 
for love, knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind and greed, you mark my words, will not only save Teldar paper, but that other malfunctioning corporation called the USA. So here, you know, Gecko presents himself as, you know, a liberator of companies. And this is as close to a self-justification that isn't, I suppose, totally evil that Stone allows him to have for himself. And, you know, I'm glad the scene is in the movie because I think it comes a lot closer to articulating what was sort of the public face of, you know, this was the, the public rhetoric around this stuff was a lot closer to the Gecko monologue we just heard as opposed to the other one that I cited. But I don't think it makes Gecko uh, any more sympathetic, uh, nor do I think it's intended to. Even though uh, generations of Wall Street guys have taken it as a sort of like anthem for, for themselves. Yeah, yeah. So I hear apparently, uh, was it Stone himself who said for years, you know, guys have been coming up to him saying, I watched this movie and I wanted to be Gordon Gecko." You know, perhaps he made a strategic error in casting someone as charismatic as Michael Douglas to play Gordon Gecko. He should have captured somebody who really feels more like Donald Trump. You know, like a guy who you instinctively hate. Um, although then I guess the movie would probably be less enjoyable. It's funny, like there's kind of, there's never really been anything cool about Donald Trump. He's the most obvious model for Gordon Gecko, but even in his day, he was a bit of a loser. He was sort of looked down upon by high society. But this guy, Gordon Gecko, he really cuts a very distinguished figure. Well, I guess we should talk about the aforementioned limitations of, of this film and its, its critique of finance capitalism. I think this is actually actually, to some extent, something that it has in common with The Wolf of Wall Street, which again, I'm not knocking. But you know, The Wolf of Wall Street, when it came out, I feel like was sort of billed as a film about like, this is the culture that gave you, you know, the, the financial crash that had just happened, you know, then that being the financial crash of 2008, 2009. And of course, to a certain extent, that's true, because you know, this culture, uh, which, you know, really took off in the, I guess, late 70s and bloomed during the 1980s during Reaganism, both Wall Street and The Wolf of Wall Street do depict it very well. But the problem is both of these movies are concerned with depicting cases of outright fraud. Like Gordon Gecko is a guy who just says, all right, son, you want to work for me? Go find out what this competitor is doing. You know, follow him onto the tarmac at an airport. The tip that Bud gives Gordon Gecko originally is this thing that he only knows because his dad is a union leader. So, you know, it's it's insider information and it's, you know, it's completely illegal and fraudulent type of trade. The Wolf of Wall Street, you know, has that scene where DiCaprio as Jordan Belfort is explaining uh, what the company is doing. And then, you know, he just kind of stops halfway through and he's like, all right, you, you don't care about this, do you? I mean, the point is, uh, was any of this legal? Absolutely not. Wolf of Wall Street is obviously based on a true story. And so I'm not faulting it in that sense. But I do think it's striking that we often get these movies about finance capitalism, where the critique is really against uh, fraud and, you know, obvious cases of malfeasance, things that were illegal, even in the hyper deregulated climate of Reaganism. The 2008 financial crash did not come about because of people behaving illegally. And, you know, hilariously, one of the things that Barack Obama says in his uh, memoir when he's dealing with the financial crisis and the fact that his administration decided to basically treat it as a weather event, you know, he's like, we're, what were we going to do? Rewrite criminal statutes to like retroactively make this behavior illegal? He says, the direct quote is he says, this would have amounted to a kind of violence to the social order. That's what he says. I think it's a shame, uh, you know, not faulting either of these films in particular for this, but I think it's a shame that there aren't more films about how this same culture that they depict so well 
can reap so much damage and destruction and human misery by doing things that are perfectly legal, which are incentivized by the way American capitalism is set up. The broader point that we're making here about how so many of these films depict fraud rather than behavior that was, you know, evil but legal, I think that critique can be leveled uh, kind of fairly at Oliver Stone here, given the other things that we've kind of identified in his broader outlook. The presence of the Terrence Stamp character really does suggest that one of the big problems here is the fact that there's this new type of capitalist that doesn't buy into the, any kind of idea of a social contract, you know, that doesn't have any social conscience. Gordon Gecko is not your daddy's capitalist, and that's the problem. And I would, I would really like a film that combined the pro-labor perspective uh, that you find in Wall Street, which, you know, one thing it has over The Wolf of Wall Street is the fact that a big part of the plot involves this attempt to destroy this union, which is clearly meant to evoke Reagan's war on the air traffic controllers, which was a key turning point in the struggle between labor and capital in America. But I wish it could combine, you know, that kind of pro-labor perspective while also having just the like raw libidinal energy of Scorsese's The Wolf of Wall Street, while also having all the kind of nerdy, intricate shit that you find in in a film like The Big Short, which I saw for the first time recently uh, and quite enjoyed, even though it's a very different kind of movie than these other two we've been discussing. The perfect Wall Street film, I think, has yet to be made. With the money you're going to make, your dad's never going to have to work another day in his life. So tell me, Gordon... When does it all end, huh? How many yachts can you water ski behind? How much is enough? It's not a question of enough, pal. It's a zero-sum game. Somebody wins, somebody loses. So I want to share something that was brought to my attention. This is completely unrelated to anything that came up before, but there's a job posting on the New York Times job board right now, uh, and it opens... We have an opening for an editorial assistant in opinion supporting columnist Maureen Dowd. You know, there's a whole list of things that the candidate has to do. Keep abreast of the news field, uh, conduct research for the columnist, and suggest ideas for columns, verify and or correct the accuracy of the information contained in draft columns and occasional guest essays, and write summaries as necessary, post on various social media platforms, and collaborate with opinion audience team on deepening relationship with readers, shepherd the columns through all stages of the publishing process, and clerical duties. I am just so tickled by this because this is a fun insight into how things actually work in the big leagues. I mean, I know, Luke, you produce a certain number of opinion or opinion adjacent columns per week. I assume you have to generate your own ideas a lot of the time, probably like you probably have to conduct your own research. Yes, like all of them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Maureen Dowd, whose articles, first of all, are not very good or interesting. She needs a staff to come up with these not very good or interesting ideas. These ideas that, with all due respect, I could probably come up with and write just as well as her. And there's such a media conspiracy to tell us to feel bad about the New York Times for bleeding so much money, uh, for becoming the failing New York Times, to quote a prominent public intellectual. Um, but they have a whole whole job that's just to be Maureen Dowd's assistant. She's not even doing journalism. She's just doing opinion pieces. Um, so that you're, about, least... you're about to tell me you've, you've taken the job, you're leaving the podcast, and then when I protest, you're going to say, hey, this is a podcasting's a zero-sum game. This is... <laughs> Folks, greed is good, you know? This is my <laughs> ticket out of here. Hey, is this the one and only Gordon Gecko? Hey, Donald. What are you talking about? You're the one and only. So now I've got competition. It's a great place to get a haircut. I love this place. I've been coming here since the 80s. Well, the 80s are no longer, Gordo. 
The world is a tough place. How's life, Gordo? Life is fine, especially with a hot new hedge fund. Uh, enjoying my exile here in London. Hot new hedge fund? Are you kidding? The economy's terrible. But you know what? Send me the details. Has anyone ever told you that you'd look great, really great, in a comb-over? <laughs> no, Donald, uh, I'm a Jill man myself. Hey, whatever makes you happy, pal. Uh, yeah, now that's the secret. Stay happy.